Good afternoon, listeners. This is Dr. Bruce Kiesling, just a GP. Yes, I'm back in the studios of News Radio 650 KENI. Actually, this is a pre record, but that's the way it's going to be going forward. I'll explain in just a moment. But first, I want everyone who's listening to this program to cut a check for 10% of you, what you made last year. Just take 10%, whatever it was, uh, and, and multiply it by 10% and send that check to the government if you would. And how's that work for you? Uh, well, probably about as well as the average pediatrician in the state of Alaska and, well, physicians in general, because the state of Alaska decided last year that Medicaid uh, reimbursement needed to be cut by 10% which was, you know, one thing to have to deal with. And, but they forgot in the reimbursement schedule and what they sent back uh, as they gradually, uh, reluctantly, and um, usually with a great deal of delay, paid the physicians for their services. Uh, they didn't, they overpaid, they say, and now they realize it, and so they want all of the physicians to cut a check for 10% of what they were reimbursed last year and send it back. And then going forward, of course, whatever you were charging as of 2016, you cut off 10% of that, and that's what you charge going forward. So so first of all, just go ahead, and if you wouldn't mind sharing the pain and, and you know cutting the, uh, the government 10% of your reimbursement of your compensation for last year and send it back to the government. Now, how bad faith and how uh, outrageous a approach uh, can this be? In addition, they said, and by the way, if you don't get your billing in completely, totally, in 72 hours, we're just going to ignore your billing. Just going to ignore it because 72 hours is, that's it. Now, in medicine, we have to go through all of these machinations of dictation, checking the dictation, but also, um, you know, frequently, as you know, when you go to the physician, the, uh, something needs to be done. For instance, there needs to be, you're sick and we have to decide how sick you are. Sometimes we have to do laboratory work, and that takes time to get back. Then we have to get the laboratory work, we have to interpret the laboratory work, and then we have to get back to you. And that doesn't always happen uh, that quickly or within 72 hours. Sometimes we have other more elaborate things that we need to do for you, and we don't get it back. For instance, you come in and you have a lesion. You say, what is this? And we say, well, gosh, you know, how long have you had it? And they say, well, you know, it's been growing rapidly, and, it, you know, it looks kind of bad. And you say, well, you know, it does look kind of uh, worrisome, and so let's remove it. Well, that requires um, an excision, a biopsy or an excision of the lesion, and then that lesion has to be sent to pathology. And the pathologist will tell us whether that was a worrisome squamous cell or a basal cell or a melanoma. And that takes a few days to a week to get back. But that's, you know, that, that, you know, as far as the state's concerned, hey, not my problem, they say. You bill in 72 hours or we're just going to ignore your bill. And by the way, don't forget to cut us a check, ASAP, in fact, right away, immediately, for that 10% we overpaid last year. Now, who in the government thought this one up because you know this is so much bad faith why don't you determine since you're going to have to determine it anyway that everyone that got paid this extra 10 percent you figure out what it is and you tell them 
we reimbursed you, let's say, the, the pediatrician, we reimbursed you for, let's say, $50,000 worth of services for the uh, thousands of kids that you saw that last year. And we're going to, and so you owe us $5,000, 10%. You know, that's 10% of $50,000. Instead of you cutting a check back to us and, and that being its own hardship, why don't we going forward recognize that we're going to reduce that, assume the same degree of volume, uh, and instead of your billing of $50,000 going forward, first of all, it's got to be $45,000 because we were supposed to cut you 10% um, last year. So that's $45,000. And then we'll knock off another $5,000 for our mistake in reimbursing you in 2017. So, you know, suck it up and you'll get $40,000 for your services that in 2016 you got $50,000 for. You know, uh, yes, I know it costs, you know, uh, overhead and all of the expenses of compliance, of all of the issues with regard to audits and all of the things that we require in Medicaid in terms of documentation, all of the formularies, all of the things that we require you to do. We know all that costs a lot of money, and that's your, but that's your problem. That's your overhead. What do you mean you're going to stop seeing Medicaid? Really? You, you can't do that. Well, actually, folks, uh, people can do that. And I'm going to be talking more and more in this program about what's going on in primary care. In primary care, we have pediatricians, we have family physicians, we have internists, and we don't have many internists left, actually. Um, a lot of the internists, in fact, what do we have? Three internists and one family physician who have decided to go into concierge medicine who have become part of MDVIP. Now, that's interesting because I actually skied with the CEO of MDVIP in June and had a delightful very interesting conversation with them. And we're going to talk about MDVIP, concierge medicine, direct medical care, and a variety of platforms. And we're going to talk about the shortage of primary care physicians and what, what that means going forward, you know, in nationally, but certainly here in Anchorage as well. But I'm going to say, I'm just going to speculate that uh, there's going to be a lot of physicians that are pretty upset. They've been teetering as it was on this whole business and all of the bureaucracy and all of the nonsense and the reimbursement rates and what have you for Medicaid. And this might be a tipping point, and that would be a shame because 40%, 40% of Alaskans depend on Medicaid. And when we look at a practice like a pediatrician's practice, much greater than 40% of their practice is dependent on Medicaid. So over the last couple of three weeks, you've noticed that the um, program was a little different. Uh, in fact, for the last, what, five weeks, we had two weeks where uh, I was, you know, had a delightful interview with my son, Willis, who's a, a resident, neurosurgery resident in uh, California. And we talked about the management of back pain, uh, the non-surgical as well as surgical management of back pain, as well as some issues in neurosurgery for, uh, relating, of course, to, to brain tumors. And 
one of the very important things uh, that we talked about was advanced directives, especially when we're talking about, well, actually, advanced directives should be uh, discussed and, and resolved regardless of whether you have a brain tumor or not. But still, uh, we want to give direction to our loved ones. It's one of the most considerate things you can do is to give instructions on how heroic you want to be in the salvage of your life when the quality of your life may be what you want to have done to you. You want to have things done for you. And if you can get back to a reasonable standard of living and certainly um, mental ability and perhaps even for many of us we want to be independent, then of course we want everything done that can be done. But at some point, and as long as you are conscious, of course, you will be making these decisions. But if you are incapacitated, and understand you don't have to be unconscious to be incapacitated in trying to figure out these problems. You can be waxing and waning in various states of consciousness and, and, and in a variety of uh, situations. If you make it clear to your loved ones and ahead of time in writing with the power of attorney and with some discussions, you will uh, save a lot of angst. It is enough of an issue with the grieving and the difficulty of handling this uh, when someone is desperately ill or terminally, terminally ill. Uh, it, it, that's, that's tough enough. But if you can make it clear what your wishes are, that's really important. So then, in a more lighthearted vein, uh, the next two weeks, we talked. Uh, I talked, uh, discussed with my sister, Luann Kiesling, a physician, uh, she's an ophthalmologist in Iowa. Luann actually started the radio program with me. The first few programs were Luann and I and Dick Lobdell in an hour-long format. That was back in 1988. And it was, it was wonderful that she could, you know, when she was coming through and visiting Alaska, we were skiing together that she was able to come on the program. We talked about, I think, some useful things. You can go back to those podcasts to learn about some ideas of dry eye, management of dry eye, and some of the disappointing studies recently that say that, you know, actually probably the things that I've touted along and what was believed to be the case in taking fish oil capsules helping with dry eye haven't really borne out in very scientific studies. It hasn't been reproduced. So... That I can't, in good faith, really recommend fish oil capsules, uh, fish oil supplements for that. I can't uh, recommend fish oil capsules and supplements in a lot of venues. And yet, and yet, uh, they talk about the nail in the coffin of fish oil supplements coming up recently. And yet, the American Heart Association has come out, even though they say the studies don't show an improvement or a mitigation of your cardiac risk if you take fish oil, the long-chain omega-3 fatty acids, and yet they admit that it does uh, decrease triglycerides, and if you have hypertriglyceridemia, uh, that is a worthwhile thing to get under control. And they also say that everyone should consider having two meals a week of fish that are rich in long-chain omega-3 fatty acids. Well, a lot of folks don't eat fish in that category two times a week. So where are we then? And we're back to, you know, 
maybe fish oil isn't so bad. Remember, a supplement has to meet a couple of criteria, fundamental criteria. Number one, does it do you any harm? And does a fish oil sample do you any harm? Yes, if it's polluted, if it's tainted with PCBs, mercury, and so on, and unfortunately some of the salutary effects of fish oil, um, about the time when we realized that there might be something behind it, a lot of our aquifers had been tainted, and the deep uh, cold water fish had, you know, these heavy metals, particularly the larger the fish, the more likely they had uh, become reservoirs for that. But wild Alaska salmon and some of the processes that certain manufacturers go through, the pharmaceutical grade, for instance, clear out those taint, tainted products, that those filter out the PCBs and the mercury and give you a pure product. So, first of all, do no harm. And so if you have a, a good fish oil product that you uh, can rely on, then and or wild Alaska salmon, of course, then you move forward with it. And we still are back into the back to the future or actually back to the past. And we're going to go back now to 1998 when I first brought this up in the year 2000. The American Heart Association said, yeah, this is probably a good idea. We're embarrassed that we haven't brought it up sooner. Then a number of studies, and they say, well, it doesn't look as good as we thought it was. And then somebody said, well, it is good for dry eye. Then another study said, well, maybe not so good for the dry eye, but so we can't recommend it just for that. And then all along we've said it seems to have an anti-inflammatory effect. Whatever salutary effect fish have in this regard, it ha seems to have something to do with decreasing inflammation. And therefore the, uh, the backdrop of fish oil coming hawked off the back of wagons and and the cod fishing industry of England back in the 17th, 16th, 17th, 18th century, and that's where cod liver oil got uh, its impetus as uh, mothers uh, gave it to their kids. Well, that was, at that time, back in the 16th, 17th century, these folks were hawking it mainly to make money, but they, lo and behold, they found out that some of the folks reported an improvement in their arthritis. And so I talked to you about, hey, you know, the Journal of Rheumatology and Arthritis say, hey, there is something behind this in the fish oil. Well, hey, we've been talking about it at least since 1998 on this program. So what's the bottom line for you? First of all, don't shake your head and get upset because in medicine uh, we are sometimes changing our story because I've told you before, medicine is the science of uncertainty and it is the art of probability. As soon as a scientist thinks they've got all the answers, uh, well, we're doomed because science is always trying to push it, the envelope and to prove itself wrong. If you cannot prove yourself wrong, then you stick with the thesis and the, and the hypothesis that you are operating under and you continue to feel good about operating on those premises. So if your premise is that fish oil, number one, doesn't do any harm, number two, may do some good uh, for a variety of reasons, then that's, that's fine. Then if you say, well, if, is it doing good as much good as we think? And of course, in the background, we're saying, are we sure it isn't doing any harm? Well, we know that if you eat Great Lakes salmon, that that's not a good idea if you're pregnant. Well, if you're not supposed to eat Great Lakes salmon if you're pregnant, why is that? Well, PCB and mercury. Well, if you're not supposed to eat it 
if you're pregnant, then is it a good idea to eat it otherwise? Well, probably you want to have, you want to fly to Alaska, uh, come fishing up here, and get yourself some really good salmon. That's assuming that the salmon fishery is open, of course, but that's another topic. All right, so over the last five weeks, we've had these pre-records, and I've been asked by the station to pre-record rather than have a live show. There's a, a few reasons for that, but we'll just go with it. And I feel that that gives me, you know, I'm going to miss the exchange uh, on the airway. I'm going to miss that. But that does not mean you don't have access to me. There's a couple of ways that you can have access to me with your questions, and I will get to them. In a way, we can look forward to tightening my program where I deliver my message maybe in a, you know, like I said, a tighter format, maybe more like a TED Talk, and maybe it's better organized. Maybe it's more enthusiastic. Maybe it's more to the point. At any rate, I'll work on that, folks. But I will answer your questions. But you have to get your questions to me. The fax number at the office is 646-2571. 646-2571. Please don't call Michelle, my nurse, who is absolutely inundated 70% of her time is dealing with pharmacies, pharmacy benefit managers, formularies, pre-authorizations. 70% of her time is spent on all the administrative crap that keeps her from patient care and helping me. Uh, and I'm sorry, uh, I, you know, she's already inundated. If you call her, uh, you leave a message, you can leave a message, but don't expect her to answer that message. Uh, you can leave your question. Just leave your question and she will get it to me. That's Michelle, my nurse, at 562-1234. That's our office number. Our fax number is 646-2571. Now, if I don't get any questions from you all, I may just open up a closed-loop email address. So you have two options. Call, leave your question. Be brief, please. Don't, don't um, you know, be to the point. She'll take the message. She'll get it to me and I will cover your question on the air. So the pre-records will allow me to cover you know, some important material, and gosh, I don't run out of material. Some of the material, a lot of the material is very controversial. I have started out 30 years ago on purely clinical, and regrettably over the years, I've had to become more and more in the uh, political arena, and that has um, created some consternation for folks because they don't like to hear what I have to say about some of the behaviors in town, some of the opportunities that are outside. And so as a result, you know, I uh, got away from the clinical medicine, but I'm going to get back into it. We're going to talk about clinical medicine. But before I do that, I want to remind you that October 9th, I believe it is, State of Reform will be having its annual get-together talking about Ain't it awful about how much medicine costs and what should we do about it and so on and so forth. There may be a shortage of primary care docs, but there's no shortage of people who uh, want to tell us how to practice medicine, how much, um, you know, it should make, and by the way, give us back 10%, uh, and, you know, how much, uh, well, you know, remember four years ago we had a certain hospital administrator that said, hey, we get it wrong 50% of the time, and a kiosk will work just as well. Reluctantly, he admitted that 
um, he was indelicate with those comments. So there's lots of opinions out there about medicine and what can and can't be done. And that's where our state of reform on October 9th gets together um, a number of people and, you know, they kind of hash it out in a, in a, a forum. Uh, this year, Virginia Mason will be, uh, is sponsoring as one of the uh, major sponsors of the program. And there will be a featured panel discussion with, um, with a, a physician uh, from Primary Care Associates, uh, Dr. John Muse, who has benefited not only uh, John's been in Alaska for, like me, same, we're the same age, and he's been practicing up here. He's a lifelong Alaskan, and he's been practicing as an internist for, well, gosh, it's got to be close to 45 years, just like me, in Alaska. And he and I, back in the 70s, uh, Virginia Mason was the go-to place for referrals. We didn't have, well, we had specialties we, uh, that were not represented or underrepresented in Alaska, and so folks went to Virginia Mason. They were the go-to place. Obviously, there's a lots of uh, centers of excellence in the lower 40 that provide services that are not available in Alaska, and that's what the panel discussion will be about, medical tourism in the sense of providing those um, opp opportunities in medicine that aren't available up here, are underrepresented up here, and in some cases cost too much up here, and a better value, get the same excellent care, but a better value uh, at Virginia Mason and, and some places outside. So stay tuned to that, uh, and if you have the opportunity or know someone that's going, make sure that they go to that session uh, from Virginia Mason. And also featured with John will be a physician who personally, who professionally rather helped John Muse, Dr. Muse personally with his medical problem and why John went outside as a physician. So you know, we talked about this before. Where do physicians go for their care? And if they're going outside for certain care, what does that say about certain things? I will tell you that a number of physicians my age have chosen to get involved because they, uh, and a lot of folks, and not just physicians, as they get in toward retirement age, they snowbird. Now, they spend a certain amount of time. They get tired of the long, cold, dark winters, and they choose to spend a significant amount of time outside. Well, because medical care generally is less expensive in the lower 48, and they tend to go to places that have a little more sunshine, there are centers of excellence outside, for instance, whether it's Mayo's um, in Jacksonville or Mayo's down close to Tucson and Phoenix area, and they sign up as, uh, as patients down there, and they choose to get their care down there and, uh, and move forward. Well, you know, they, as I understand it, the, the governor himself went outside for his medical care, I'm not in any way disparaging the uh, those who are the A-team, and you know what the A-team means. Primary Care Associates identifies those physicians in Anchorage to whom we would go for our care with confidence, and therefore those are the only physicians to whom we send our patients or we, we recommend to our patients. Then our patients have to work out with that specialist, and, you know, whether they can maybe negotiate a, a different price, whether the copay and deductible uh, is going to be perhaps waived or maybe uh, mitigated in some way or in some fashion make it more affordable for the patient. At any rate, that's what, but we have confidence in the A-team in Alaska, and those are specific uh, practitioners that we recommend. All right, so uh, let's get on to some clinical uh, issues, uh, the remainder of the program. 
And people often ask me what, I mean, this frequently comes up, should I be taking a low-dose aspirin? And I just recently read an article that low-dose aspirin is not effective. It does not appear to be effective in preventing cardiovascular events in people weighing 70 kilograms or more. What's that translate to? 154 pounds. This was a big study that came out of Lancet in my journal that I get from the Royal Academy of Family Practice. Now, they analyzed 120,000 people and looking at the primary prevention of cardiovascular events. Now, how does aspirin work? Well, it keeps the platelets from being over sticky. Platelets, if they get are a very important part in the clotting mechanism, and it's one of the very first things that happens when you cut yourself is that you get a number of platelets aggregate to that injury, and they create a platelet plug, which then also stimulates a cascade of clotting factors that come and create the fibrin clot, and the healing begins. If you have, an, uh, perhaps uh, sometimes when you have a, uh, and we all get, plaque as we get older. Some of us get plaque and cholesterol plaque and uh, more than others, and we've talked about that and how to mitigate that on previous programs. But the inflammation around the plaque the, uh, and the gradual aging of the blood vessel, it creates a, an inflammatory situation of its own that can encourage a platelet plug when it's not supposed to be there. In other words, a, a platelet aggregation that will uh, may even create a clot and a blockage of a blood vessel, and that's a stroke or a heart attack. So the point behind low-dose aspirin is to uh, get to Goldilocks platelets function where it's not creating a, 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 you know, that plug when it's not supposed to in your blood vessels. But it isn't going to work if you're over 154 pounds. And we're talking low-dose aspirin. What is an average aspirin dose? Well, an Excedrin is a combination, for instance, of caffeine, Tylenol, the product, the acetaminophen, which is what uh, Tylenol is made of, and aspirin, 325 milligrams. So uh, um, you have these combination medicines like Excedrin. You have pure aspirin, which in a standard dose is about 325 milligrams. Well, we said that the studies that showed the better control of platelets and their function so that they don't create plugs when they're not supposed to, that that effect comes at a fairly low dose, a low-dose aspirin of about 80 milligrams. But it doesn't work if you're 154 pounds. Daily low-dose aspirin was associated with reduced risk for cardiovascular events only among those less than 70 kilograms in this study of 120,000 people. But there was no significant effect for heavier patients, which were, guess what, 80% of the men in the study, and, guess what, at least 50 to 60% of the women. They weighed more than 154 pounds. Who would have thought? I mean, and I'm trying to be sarcastic, but you know what I mean. Uh, folks are gotten uh, really, we've gotten really heavy. In the heavier group, low-dose aspirin may be even less effective in smokers and in those who take the coated aspirin. Now, the coated aspirin uh, it gets you know doesn't get into your system like it's uh, like it's supposed to. But at any rate, high dose aspirin, which is the 300 to 325 milligram, that's a standard dose. There are aspirin preparations that are as high as 500 milligrams per tablet. 
They appeared to be effective in reducing the primary cardiovascular events only in patients weighing 70 kilograms or more. Okay. So now, should you be taking an aspirin? You need to talk to your doc about it, and you need to examine your own risk of what's it like to take aspirin in your system. Aspirin is the gold standard for non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. The fact that it's been around a long time does not change that it is the gold standard. It's not sexy. It doesn't have groovy uh, advertisements of folks running through fields and, and looking sprightly in their 60s, 70s, and 80s because they take uh, ibuprofen in the form of Motrin or, in the, uh, or sold as Advil or folks that are taking a leave and all of those wonderful advertisements. You don't see advertisements for uh, aspirin, and yet it still is the gold standard. You don't see advertisements for it because it is not, it, it is not patented. Uh, I mean, it's available inexpensively. And yes, we have to respect that it has certain side effects. Anytime you take a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory, you have to think of several end-organ collateral damage possibilities. And I'll be back here on the program here in the studios of News Radio 650 KENI next week.